0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Sunday in Waterloo. Hamilton had their ALS walk a week or so ago. Sunday in Waterloo is the walk to end ALS. And a very good friend of mine, someone that I went to high school with, and he was in my wedding, he is now going through this. He is battling ALS. It is not fun, honestly. It's not fun. There's not much fun about it. But... It's an amazing story when you listen to him talk about the disease and going through it and what it takes. And yet, you know, as you'll hear in just a moment, um, he has somehow remained way, way more positive about life than I think I probably would have under the same circumstances. I thought, you know what? We hear about ALS a lot. We all did the ice bucket challenge at one time, but I wanted to have him on to talk about what it's really like what this disease is really like, because we rarely hear about that. Because oftentimes the challenge is the people who have it lose their capacity to speak and therefore they lose their capacity to communicate what it's like. Well, this is a bit of a different interview. We don't usually do this. Phil now talks by looking at letters on a screen, which translate into words. He can, by looking and then staring at a letter for a second, it will grab that letter. It's an amazing system that they've got. And it will then, once he's created the word, the computer, the program will voice it. So obviously, this is not the kind of interview that we can do live. It would be too difficult to do this with long, long, long pauses. So something we never do, but we're doing today. Uh, we gave, we we chatted before, and we talked, and then put those questions into writing, and allowed him to come up with his answers, and then we've put it together. So it's a pre-taped interview because we had no other choice, but it, I think you're going to be, this is Phil, this is my friend Phil Ceres. Uh we chatted the other day, here we go. Phil, welcome to the show, glad that you could come on. Thanks Scott, it's great to be here. Uh, it's a big weekend, this is the ALS walk in Waterloo where you live, Hamilton had it's a week or so ago, uh, and not just Waterloo this weekend, it's a number of other places as well you are getting people paying attention i understand that team phil is
1: big and growing this year yes we are team hope for more walking this sunday in waterloo we raise money for national als research and regional support services both are so important
0: let's talk about als for a minute i didn't know hardly anything about als other than lou gehrig until you were diagnosed, and that got me looking things up. I'm betting that's the way it is with a lot of people, that once someone they know has to deal with this now, they start to look it up and learn a bit about it. What did you know at the
1: beginning? I knew the basics. I did the ice bucket challenge. I knew it was the last thing I wanted to get. The worst of the worst. The idea of losing all physical function, but being totally alert was terrifying. I didn't know the life expectancy can be as short as two years. I didn't know how common it is. I am meeting too many people recently diagnosed. I didn't know that for the most part it's not a painful disease. Perhaps a silver lining to a very dark cloud.
0: When did you know that things weren't right, what was going on or what were the symptoms that led you to believe that there was something wrong with you?
1: There are two types of ALS. One that begins in the limbs. The other begins in the voice and throat. My voice started to get raspy a year before my diagnosis. I thought it was midlife stress. I took a health leave to figure it out. The other early symptom is extreme emotion. I would laugh uncontrollably at not funny jokes, and cry at touching moments. That was weird.
0: Is this an easy thing to diagnose? Were doctors able to figure it out quickly and easily because the symptoms just pointed them right in a particular
1: direction? Looking back, I am surprised at the six months it took bouncing between doctors and specialists. ALS for some reason remains in our blind spot. Maybe because no one wants to imagine such a horrid possibility. I remember one specialist being visibly upset. But he couldn't let on. Only refer me to neurologist in London. There the tests are more specific. Particularly they look for muscle facilitation. All my muscles had involuntary twitching which is the major cause of weight loss. I am hypermetabolic for the first time in my life.
0: What was it like hearing the doctor tell you that you had ALS? What, what, what is going through your mind or what is that day like?
1: On the day of diagnosis, you hear one phrase like crashing thunder. There is no cure. It's hard to take those words in in our day and age. I've watched enough TV that all you need to do is wave a blue light over me and I'll be fine. Right? But seriously, no surgery, no chemo, no rehab. Just wait for the disease to progress and your clock to run out. So strange. Helpless. Hopeless.
0: That was about three years ago that you got that diagnosis. What has happened in the subsequent three years? What? changes have you had in your life? What has been lost to you?
1: Every ALS progression is totally unique. So much so that they refuse to give you any prediction for your scenario. Very frustrating. For me, my balance started to go around a year after voice deterioration. 18 months later, only the highly intuitive family members could understand me. And I had to use a scooter for any distance two years and i can't speak at all and am in an expensive power chair they won't let me call it my electric chair haha <laughs> all the while my ability to swallow and eat got progressively worse you go from non-cooable to everything blended to now a feeding tube that takes a formula right through your belly into your stomach pretty depressing for the foodie i was
0: You've been very active on social media all all the way through this, and you've been very open. And one of the interesting words that you've used a lot is mourn, that you have mourned the loss of certain things. What's been the hardest? What's been the thing that has been the most difficult to lose?
1: The hardest thing was to lose the ability to enjoy food, especially because so much socializing revolves around food. The most life-changing was the loss of hands, it's the loss of all independence. But the soft losses which are as real. Every month there is something to mourn. A hobby. A pastime. A dream. You learn to grieve and refocus on what you have, and what new blessing this journey has brought.
0: I would think that for many people in your position that it would be pretty easy to be angry or bitter or why is this happening to me? And that would be, I think, very, very natural, very understandable. Certainly, you haven't really done that. You have an incredible faith in God. You have somehow managed to not go down that path too much. You have, you've maintained a remarkably optimistic and positive outlook.
1: How? You know? I have avoided anger and bitterness for the most part. I would say my experience is more sadness. Grief is hard but it is also healthy. It helps you say goodbye to the many losses. You mentioned my faith. Yes that's made the biggest difference. You see true Christian faith is transformative at the deepest level. The love of God has shaped my identity. So I am not a victim. I may have ALS, but ALS doesn't have me. This means I still have purpose and things to live for. Days are short, but they can still be rich with family, friends, and faith. What's kind of
0: stunning to me, Phil, about this is that Lou Gehrig had this in 1939. That's 85 years and almost... 84 years. And we still don't seem to be all that far ahead of this in our understanding, or certainly as far as having a cure. There is no cure for this at this point, and there's no way to really stop the disease. There might be some treatments that could potentially slow it down a little bit, but we can't cure this yet. Are you optimistic from what you've heard from doctors and talking to specialists? Are you optimistic that there is research coming that will help either for you or for others after you?
1: You're right, it's been almost 85 years. Modern medicine has advanced in so many areas except neurodegenerative diseases. There are recent breakthroughs and ongoing clinical trials. But comparatively, they don't offer much. It's hard to be optimistic. But there is incredible support structures to tap into. There is a team of specialists who help me cope and direct me to assisting technologies like stair glide, power chair, feeding tube, and eye gaze computer. Yes, I am speaking now by staring at keys on a screen, selecting from the predictive text options. All these things cost money. There is some government support, but I would would encourage everyone to rally around their friends with ALS. They have an immediate need for this twenty to thirty thousand dollars to invest in the tools that will help them greatly. So, what would you
0: say then to someone who was diagnosed, say, today? If you bumped into someone who had just learned they had ALS, what words would you offer? What advice? What what could you say, or what would you say to someone who is in the position today that you were three years ago?
1: Wow, what would I say? No words. I would rather just cry with them. I could tell the people who had experience with ALS. Because when I told them they would burst into tears. And then by their generosity. But really there is no way around acknowledging that this is a terrible disease. But you aren't alone. Reach out to your local ALS society representative. Embrace all the aids become an early adopter they will help you focus on the good things left in your life also resist the temptation to be the victim it will blind you to the many silver linings in this storm lastly I am sorry this is part of your story but it's not the whole story look to your family and friends your causes and your God they will help you write the final chapters. May you find peace.
0: That's uh, that's my friend Phil, who um, will be leading the charge at the walk to end ALS in Waterloo tomorrow. It's uh, his his story and his attitude and his clarity is amazing to me. Um, if you uh, if you didn't catch it and if you wanted to do something, uh, his team is called Hope for Hope number four more. Hope for more. Um, this is not a fundraising interview. We're not, that's not the reason for this, but if you want to, if you want to help, uh, you can go on to the, um, walk to end ALS website and you can find the walks and you can find hope for more. And if you wanted to do something, um, I'm sure that, uh, they wouldn't say no to that. Uh, but if you, uh, if you know someone who's got ALS, you probably knew this already, but I uh, appreciate Phil sharing that one so honestly. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. We had some by-elections across the country the other day, uh, earlier this week, and there were no real surprises. Nobody that lost was supposed to win and nobody that won was supposed to lose. It was pretty much status quo, but for one thing, but for one thing. Leading up to this, a number of polls had pointed out that the conservatives were on a roll, that Pierre Polyev numbers were way up and yet In some of these ridings, they may have won, but with a smaller percentage. Is there a message in this that Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives aren't necessarily going to like, that maybe they are not the party that is going to sweep to power in the next election? Let's bring in our friend Stephen LaDrew. He is the former president of the Liberal Party of Canada. He is now the host of the 3-Minute Interview. You can find that on his website and on YouTube. How are you, Stephen?
2: I'm very, very well, Scott, and I'm fascinated by this topic that you brought up.
0: Well, you would have thought, I would have thought that looking at the polls that had been done in the days and weeks before, the national polls, that the Conservatives were on a bit of a roll, they had momentum, and this was going to be a time afterwards that the Liberals were going to be doing some navel-gazing to figure out what was going on. I think the Conservatives have to be worried now.
2: I think you're absolutely right. You've highlighted a problem that I've been uh, thinking about for quite some time, because many polls show that, for instance, most recent one, four out of five Canadians want a new prime minister, a new federal government. They're tired of the incompetence, they're tired of the corruption, they're tired of being talked down to. And yet, as you have pointed out, people aren't warming to the Conservatives. Now, the traditional thought in politics is like governments defeat themselves, and then the opposition will just get elected. But Canadians seem to like someone who they think is nice, and even though Trudeau um, is, uh, you know, I, as I said, he's he's been a failure as a prime minister. Many many people think he's nice and uh, either charming or handsome or good hair, or whatever. You know, they think he's nice, and so therefore he's electable in our strange politics in Canada. So. And a lot of people with think he's not nice. And uh, he may have uh, a fresh approach. He may be strong and, uh, and decisive, and he doesn't want to put up with the baloney. But a lot of people say, well, I've, I've talk- spoken to women and also very, many men now, too, saying, yeah, we seem like a bit of a P R I C K, I guess. They you know, say he's just not. Nice. And I think the Conservatives have their work cut out for him because I'm told by people who know him, he is very nice. He's charming. He's a, you know, a young father. Uh, you know, He's a great family man. And they say he's nice, but he doesn't come across that way. And that's a problem for the Conservatives. They've got to, they've got to really work on this. Send him to Charm School. Send him out with a lot of women all the time around him. And he's got a new team because otherwise they are, for the third time in a row, in danger of blowing uh, what should be, um, uh, you know, slam dunk
0: for them. The, the, The challenge of this, I would think, for him and for that party is that philosophically there is a deep, deep, deep belief that the country is headed in the wrong direction, that so many things are being done wrong, that you almost have to be like the stern parent that draws attention to this rather than the nice parent who everybody likes but doesn't really fix anything, and yet if you play the role of the stern parent saying, look, we're going bankrupt, we're spending too much, we're doing this, we're doing that, you're right. Then you don't seem likable and electable. How do you find the balance in that?
2: Well, that's the uh, difficulty. It's one of those bizarre things of uh, democracy, and you put your uh, your finger on it, Scott, that you can't get elected by preaching for tough medicine Uh, by preaching that we're going to have to go through uh, difficult times in order to get back on track. People won't vote for that. People vote for Trudeau in 2015 because he said, I'm going to give you everything under the sun. and I'm going to just give you checks, as he's been doing ever since. Yeah, they like that. And so you have to, for the Tories right now, I think they have to moderate their message they have to say that we aren't going to be giving 260 million dollar contracts to the prime minister's friends. We aren't going to be um, blowing the budget. We are going to respect uh, you know dollars and cents and understand that we can't saddle the next two or three generations with huge debt. But we're going to do it in a how can I put this in a more gentle and a nicer way. And they have to say that I think in order to get elected. And then, as you have seen, as your listeners have seen so often in Canada and in the United States, uh, Britain, other democracies, that you know you get in there and you have to uh, then toe the line, um, but you but, can't tow that line before you get in.
0: But isn't or else you're not going to get in isn't what you just described exactly what Aaron O'Toole tried to do in the last election by moderating and pulling back and not looking scary and not looking all that conservative and being nicer. And it didn't work for him. So, uh, w- I mean, it, it seems like if you go nice, you look like you're not standing for anything. And if you go mean, right. you're not really nice. And so we don't like you. I I, I, th- I. mean, the seems to me the real problem here is they haven't yet In all the the shots and all the positions, they haven't found the thing that people are really willing to trust them with, seems like. If they could find the thing that angered people enough and build the the thing around that, but right now it looks like they're sort of just shooting at everything and nothing's sticking.
2: I think you're absolutely right. I think, though, that it's the subtlety of the messaging that has to come through. With Aaron O'Toole, a fine man, and of course we'll all remember he got more votes in Canada than uh, Justin Trudeau did, but I mean, he looked like a flip flopper. He, he said one thing at the start of the campaign, and then three weeks into the campaign, he said different. One hundred and eighty degrees. And people said, "Well, clearly, he doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. or He's got no conviction." So you have to, you can't abandon your conviction. Um, but and Brian Mulroney was a, was was the master of this in 1984 when he became prime minister. The West and a lot of Canada just did not like uh, Justin Trudeau's dad. He couldn't win as dog catcher in Carrobert, Saskatchewan. He just hated the Liberals. and It didn't matter that John Turner was fabulous. They just wanted to bounce those Liberals out. And Mulroney, he said, okay, I, all these Tories in the West are going to vote for me no matter what. So I'm going to go a little bit to the left, softly, gently, and portray myself as a little bit, Less than some real hardacre conservative, and he got that middle Canadian vote that was fed up with uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau and wanted a nice landing, and he gave them that nice landing. And he, like, he threaded that needle perfectly. Later on, of course, he paid the price because uh, you know, Preston Manning and the Reform Party took the, uh, the common sense, the right wing, and, uh, and left the conservatives. But for the moment, well, Rooney did that. And I think that a lot of conservative, conservative uh, listeners are going to be saying, "Wow, ah, that's wrong, Andrew." But they have to move a little bit towards the softer, gentler, kinder side and say, "Yeah, we're going to fix this problem, but we aren't going to put, be putting single moms out on the street. We aren't going to be cutting health care. We aren't going to be, you know, cutting benefits to anybody. We're going to do it through smart administration, as opposed to." And Canadians in the teeth,
0: stephen, we got to run here, but really quickly can, do is can Pierre Polyev change though because it seems he's been this guy all along? It seems like this is him. can he change convincingly well, I,
2: think, I think he can change Scott. The question is whether the mainstream media who have labeled him now are going to uh, change their perspective of him and and that's that's a risky thing because I'm not sure that they will. The mainstream media, the media paid by the Trudeau government, uh, like the Toronto Star, making billions of dollars every year because of taxpayers' dollars, they are going to change. Their job is to vilify Polyev, and they're going to continue to do that. So it's going to be a big unfolding, Scott.
0: Stephen LaDrew, former president of the Liberal Party of Canada and now the man behind the three-minute interview. Always appreciate having you on, Stephen. Thanks for doing this. It's always my pleasure to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me offer a very quick reminder before I bring Rick Zamper in here. Uh, tomorrow night at Tim Horton's field, 7.30 is kickoff. The Ticats host the Montreal Alouettes. The, I would suggest, we don't know how good they are, but probably mediocre Alouettes. Followed by the 0-2 Ottawa Red Blacks the week after. The 0-2 Edmonton Elks, who both teams look <laughs> Uh, Then they got a game with Toronto, then Ottawa again, Montreal, and Edmonton. Six of the next seven games you would think the Ticats should win. Does Rick Zamprin, host of the fifth quarter, football aficionado, a man who has a Ticat logo tattooed prominently, one on each buttock, does he believe they are winning six of the next seven games?
3: Well, I would like to clarify on each (laughs) photo, there is the old logo and the new logo. And the old logo, it took took some ink, let me
0: tell you. Well... I mean, I, I'm looking at this, and okay, let's, let's give the, the usual caveat that, you know, teams can have a good day or teams can have a bad day. So I'm looking at this, though, Rick, and saying, to me, despite the 0-2 start, is absolutely no reason why the Cats should not win five of their next seven games starting tomorrow.
3: Well, you know what? When the schedule came out, I said, uh, you know, look at the teams that they're facing in the first three months. And I gave this team an 8-3 and three record by Labor Day. And I'm, I may have been generous with a game, or maybe two, knowing that this team traditionally has been a very slow starting team. But, when, yeah, when you say five in the next seven, I think that's definitely feasible, even with their backup quarterback, Matthew Schild starting tomorrow. And who knows for how many weeks after that. I think the teams that they're facing, they got a, a bunch of home games coming up, including the next two. That is definitely... Um, that's definitely a possibility. Now, whether it's going to be a reality or not, that's that's the question.
0: I'm going with not even with their backup. I'm going with because Matt Schiltz is playing Ooh. tomorrow. I, I think, think Matt Schiltz is going to have this offense going. Here's my big prediction. I think he's going to have this offense going, and I think you're going to have a quarterback controversy in Ticatland when Bo Levi Mitchell is healthy again. Because I think Schultz is a really, really good young quarterback who just needs the time to stretch his legs and make it go.
3: Well, yeah, and not, not only that, I mean, in the in the games that he's played with Hamilton, even previous that to Montreal, he hasn't really gotten a long stretch of games. And, you know, my... Mind you, like, some of that reasoning is because he, he wasn't playing well, especially in his Montreal game, or Montreal days. But the fact of the matter is he's got all the physical tools to be an above-average quarterback in this league. You know, he, We all know he can run. It's that decision-making in the pocket. Uh, whether he can eliminate those mistakes going forward, that's going to be the big key because they can't afford to turn the ball over. Um, he can't afford to turn the ball over because you know with Bo on the shelf... The next option is a guy who's really unproven, and that's Taylor Powell. So I'm, I'm a believer in Matt Schultz. I think he's got all the physical tools to do it. The mental part of the game now, in his progression and his reads, reading defenses, that's going to take him to the next level. And I'm I'm eager to see what he's got in store for us tomorrow against the L.A.
0: You just alluded to something a second ago, Rick, and that is their slow starts. I, can you offer some deep, insightful theory? On why this franchise, not this team, because over the last like 17 years, I think it's 13 times in the last 17 years, they've started 0-2. There's nobody playing in black and gold right now who was on that same team back 17 years ago when this problem started. How can a franchise start slowly year after year after year?
3: I've thought about this long and hard over the years, and the only thing I can think about is... It's got something to do with the summer solstice. The way the earth and the sun are (laughs) aligned, the Tiger Cats just cannot win at this time of year. I don't know what it is. I mean, it is. you look at every team in the CFL, and no one even comes close to the record you just described. Or, you know, losing 16 of their 18 season opening games over the last nearly two decades. It's mind-boggling. Well, so, no, I don't I don't have a good answer for you at all.
0: Especially when you consider that, okay, it would be one thing uh, if the Ticats were never good. I mean, okay, so they start 0-2, but every year they are, like, they're the Detroit Lions, and so, like, every year they just stink, so, okay. <laughs> but how many times in those 17 years have they been to the Grey Cup, even if they haven't won it? Five, six, seven? I mean they have had and they've been close other times they've had good seasons this is not a team that has been el stinko all the time they have good teams they just can't win to start
3: it is yeah it is you know it's a mystery because you know last year they were oh and four they made the playoffs you know remember that year they started zero and eight you know the 60 to one game against calgary was in there they fired ken austin june jones comes in they go I think it was six and two down the stretch or something bonkers like that. I mean, it's it's uncanny the slow starts that they get off to, but somehow, some way, they kind of figure it out. I mean, even last year, they won four of their last five going into the playoffs, and you know, then you know, put up a stinker against the Alouettes. But for whatever reason, you know, the first month of the season is kind of a, I don't know. I'm not sure what we're going to get. But, you know, 0 and two will be two and two after the month, and then who knows what happens after that. But you know, you look at the schedule, Montreal. In their first game, you know, they weren't that impressive against a really weak Ottawa team. And, you know, yeah, they're coming off the bye week, but, you know, Hamilton has played two, probably two of the best teams in the league in Winnipeg and Toronto. And, you know, both first halves of both games were absolute write-offs. Played, you know, pretty good second halves in both games. Maybe not so much against the Argos, but at least they held Toronto in check uh, on their side of the ball defensively. But they got to start Strong at home tomorrow. I know it's shits, and you know the, the hype around Mitchell has kind of subsided because of his injury. But th- this is as close to a must-win in week three that you can get, mm. because you go down 0-3 going into the bye with Bo hurt and and a number of other players hurt. You got like ten guys on the injured list. This is as close to a must-win as you can get.
0: You know what is the one constant in all that time when they can't win is Bob Young. This is clearly Bob Young's fault that his team starts slowly every year. It must be some, Bob Young must be going into training camp and giving some speech that is so horrible every year that he doesn't <laughs> strike the team to, into, a, into a, you know, a, just a, a, a pitch, a fever pitch. He does the opposite. He dulls their senses, and it takes two or three weeks to overcome the Bob Young opening round speech, right? That, that has to be it.
3: Perhaps it's Bob's reluctance to utter the Argo Suck chant and
0: really yes, dullens
3: the spirits of the guys in the locker
0: room. You know, okay, so, as, and, and I'm joking about the Bob Young speech and everything, sure, by the yeah. way, just in case anyone's confused and thinking I really mean it. Um, but, but to that point, if, if the same thing has happened poorly for you, even if you don't believe in superstition, Rick, even if you're not on board with that, do you not, if you're Bob Young... Do you not George Costanza the season when you're hosting the Grey Cup and you say, rather than salmon on white, I'm going to have tuna on rye? I'm going opposite. Everything that I normally do, I think Bob Young now, it's at the point this team needs to change something, this franchise needs a, 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 a break. Bob Young should lead the Argo suck chant in the stands with a megaphone.
3: Yeah, I also thought you were going to say he was going to live under his office desk. Uh,
0: <laughs> that would be, a, maybe he does. I don't
3: know, but that would be a change too. He, but yeah, I, you know what? And from Bob's perspective, like you know, he has the players in place, so to speak, being you know the front office and the yep, coaching yep. staff, and, and obviously the players. And you know, it's it's there. Even though Bob owns the team and, and is the caretaker of the team, quote unquote, I think he's put together a decent team of front office people that take care of the business side of. Coach o, being the president of football operations to amass the coaching staff he has and yeah there's going to be ups and downs and I know fans in the fifth quarter are going to call for Tommy Condell's head again tomorrow if you know they don't win but the fact of the matter is they have experience on the sidelines I, I think they got a pretty good talented team it's just a matter of them not executing on game day I mean that's that that's that, that's what it boils down to and mm. I know that you know sometimes uh, a cop out or recello but that's really it. Come the X's and O's, and a few plays here and there, they're just not getting the job
0: done. i got one other suggestion for Bob Young. Drop the red hat name and go with Vandalay Industries. And,
3: <laughs> and all the players have to wear a wool uniform.
0: <laughs> That's right. yeah, I'm sure they would love that. All right. So so we're, we're two games, for some teams, only one for some games, but we're two yeah. games into the CFL season. In my mind entirely meaningless. It, what has happened so far means absolutely nothing. However, there are the BC Lions and Winnipeg Blue Bombers, which are 2-0. and There are the Ottawa Red Blacks and the Hamilton Ticats and the Edmonton Elks that are 0-2. Of any of those teams, good or bad, which do you think is most likely to be representative of how they really are as a team?
3: Uh, I would say, without a doubt, the Edmonton Elks um you know i would put ottawa as a close second and i i I only leave ottawa out because jeremiah masoli is not starting and i know nick arbuckle is a you know an okay quarterback but he's had his issues edmonton is just a team that is in continuous rebuild they haven't won a home game since god was a boy they i I know they added guys like gino lewis in the offseason gave uh, um, taylor cornelius a big contract but They're still a ways away. They're still a lot of players away from being a, even a competitive team. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're going to take their lumps like they did last week against BC. I mean, getting shut out in the CFL is hard to do. I think the last time the Ticats shut out a team was 1974. I was zero years of age. So, yeah, that's, this Edmonton team has, has a lot of work ahead of it. I know Chris Jones is the plan, and he's added some guys that will take them to that next level, but maybe need a lot more guys like Geno Lewis to get the job done.
1: It, it,
0: okay, am I missing something here? Because one of the things, and I probably am, but one of the things that has always been a truism about the CFL, especially, Rick, at a time now when guys don't sign long-term contracts, You can turn around a CFL team really, really fast. You always have been able to. I mean, has something in your mind changed that somehow it's much more difficult now? I remember teams that were terrible one year, and because the contracts are short and you can make some moves, you could make them way better overnight. I don't know what's taken Edmonton so long.
3: Well, there's two ways to think of that. Yes, contracts are short. Everyone's got a one-year deal, basically, unless you're a superstar in this league. And, and there's good and bad to that. The bad part is when your team stinks like Edmonton or is rebuilding and has a new ownership group like Montreal, even though they won their first game, a, a lot of free agents who are going to sign these one year deals are thinking, am I going to be there for one year? And well, and, and then what? Like, are we going to win? Are we going to be a competitive team? Do I want to commit this one year where I can maybe sign with a uh, Calgary or maybe with a Hamilton because they're hosting the Great Cup or you know maybe I can even be a special teamer on winnipeg and 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 compete for a ring. I think the one year deals are good, but they're also bad in that sense as well
0: okay, so uh last week on the fifth quarter we I know you got to run we've only got a couple of minutes here, but last week on the fifth quarter for the as you mentioned a second ago for the second straight week, the tie cats were. I don't want to overstate it, but is "abysmal" too strong a word? In the first half, they were really bad. In the first half, they got better in the second half. But what was the reaction? What was the what was what were the fans saying about their performance? Were they being forgiving because of how they looked in the second half, or pointing fingers because of how badly they started?
3: I I think in week one it was man we stunk in the first half, but we played extra. You know, extra good in the second half. We, you know, we rallied. We showed that we could compete with the likes of Winnipeg. Game number two against Toronto, much different story. You know, it's it's the arch rivals. Again, they stunk in the first half. They were, you know, average at best in the second half, especially offensively. Even with Matt Shields coming in, I know they got the touchdown, and I know they moved the ball a little bit better than they did in the first half, but just not good enough. And I know it's a road game. And I know it's back to back against two really good teams, but. The fans want to see winning football and they haven't seen it so far this season, you know, save for the preseason game, which really doesn't matter. Um, I think the first half always have to be corrected tomorrow. And and last year was kind of the opposite. They were a great first half team and really pooped the bed in the second half, time after time after time. Um, you know, after so many games you were expecting you were just expecting it. You know, yeah, they played a great first half. Well, you know, they're not gonna do so good in the in the second half. So far this season, it seems to be the reverse, and let's hope the trend is broken starting tomorrow and, and from there on in. But, but I want to make one more uh, you know, mention about the schedule because they're in Winnipeg, which is a you know tough game in week one. They're in Toronto, who had the bye week in week one, and Toronto, you know, on the roads—that's so a tough game. And now you're playing Montreal, who's coming off their bye week. So the first three weeks of the season for the Ticats—I'm not sure if the schedule makers don't don't like him <laughs> or what the case is—but that's a pretty tough stretch. First three weeks of the
0: season. Yeah, and 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 to your uh, to your point and and I I agree with you to your point though about starting, if you after the last two weeks, so so you've known you're familiar with how you started, you're aware there's been a problem, Mm -hmm. it's a point of I'm sure it's a point of emphasis this week. We've got to start better. And if you come out in front of a full house at home when you should have even extra juice in the tank, if they don't start great, I think that becomes a real talking point is what's going on. The, 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 every single thing should be pointing at them being great in the first half.
3: And and there you'll have the conversation or the argument I'm sure some will make that, you know, it's the coach's responsibility to motivate the players. And yes, part of that is true. But at this stage of your career, pro football, you should be motivated yourself. Yep. You're, you're earning the paycheck. you got to go out and make the plays. And and be ready from you know from the opening kickoff. We'll see if it
0: happens. Yeah, we'll see. I, I can't. I can't. I can't expect anything other than a fast start, considering again how many things are pointing to such a point of emphasis and on an awareness. Um, but we will see. Uh, Rick will be right here on nine hundred CHML after the game tomorrow night for calls on the fifth quarter. You may call in in whatever state of sobriety you find yourself at that <laughs> time. Just keep it clean, is all he asks. Uh Rick, hey, thanks for doing this. I know you're busy. Appreciate you jumping in. You got us, Scott. Anytime. Uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, they I don't I don't Montreal won their first game. I don't think they're that good. And then as I say, you've got Ottawa and Edmonton, two of the probably the weakest teams in the league, and you've got them twice coming up each. This seems like, I I will disagree with Rick on one point. I don't think this is must win, but my goodness, could you, I mean, if you don't play well in this one, I don't know that it's must win to make the playoffs or get to the Gray Cup or anything like that, but if they come out flat, if they look bad in this one with all the things going on, I'm not sure it's must win, but boy, it'll be many, 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 many questions being asked about this. All that said... I do not expect that. I think, I think uh, my estimation, my guess, the Thai cats are going to absolutely throttle the Alouettes tomorrow. I, I truly am expecting them to win by 20 points. Easy. At least. With everything that's going on and playing at home, 20 points. We'll see. And if, I, if I'm totally wrong, feel free to call into the fifth quarter and say Radley was so far off. <laughs> I don't mind. I'll take it. Good break coming up. Back after this. Stay with us.